I'm gonna open a record shop. Hello, I'm your host, Jim McLean. Welcome to the latest edition of the Bandaflix podcast. Joining me in the start of this new series is two of our very own, that is Therese Ray. Hi, Jim. And Joe McElroy. How you doing, Jim? Awards season is over and done with, guys. Let the mediocre blockbusters invade the cinema again. But just generally, you know, for you, I know we can talk specifically about the Academy Awards on Sunday night. What was your thoughts on the ceremony itself? I'll start with you, Therese. Um, well, you know, if anybody had watched it, it was very evident there wasn't a host. There was the whole debacle about Kevin Hart beforehand. Um, I mean, I think that for me, the only good host that they've ever had in the past couple of years was Ellen. I thought she was brilliant. Is that just because you love um, Ellen? Well, yeah, it's because of Bass too. And she got a pretty good selfie that year, which I really liked. Well, um, there was one person in it that you yeah. kind of don't want to be in it anymore. Oh, just oh yeah, I forgot he was in it. Quick Photoshop, it'll be all right. Yeah, oh, Chris, Christopher, Christopher Plummer's in that photo yeah, now. Yeah. 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 Christopher Plummer's <laughs> there. It's, it's, it's no more Kevin Spacey. Because <laughs> even best, the best thing about it with Kevin Spacey is he kind of crept into it. Cause yeah, he so he's I, not in it full. Life. <laughs> oh, Joe. We'll leave it there. Yeah. Christopher Plummer was in that selfie, yeah. He, he made it better. Um, I, 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 award, I do enjoy award season, um, but this Oscars was a wee bit lacklustre. I mean, you could tell that so, you know, so much of it is obviously scripted. You know, they're reading off a teleprompter, but it was even more scripted in the sense that they tried to have a bit of crack because they knew that there wasn't a host and they knew that there wasn't anything really in between um well, tina Fey and amy poehler were kind of funny for a, yeah but that, that was like a tiny part like i mean um i'm trying to remember there was somebody came on and the two they just thought they were a gag um was that melissa mccarthy and when they came out in the costumes for was it uh the, she came out in the kind of the period drama costume for when oh, they were sort of favorite oh yeah. yeah um even um like Samuel and whenever like Brie Larson came out together, it was a wee bit cringy. Thought they'd yeah. carry on. I was like, keep it to the film, you two. Maybe because I think it's it, the whole thing's just so rushed. You have, I mean, I, I just think, Trez, when you watch the TV, you just sound like a granny. I mean, it's just, it comes out of me. Oh, would you look at the stale M.T. on a stage no. there, like, they're, they're wet crack. No, but like, you can't. Keep it to the cinema, son. Literally, just keep it to your, your TR film that everybody's going to. Lose their minds over for the next six months. Don't ahead. even get me started. I am like I am. I'm actually really excited about Captain Marvel just because I have a, a professional crush on Brie Larson. I think she's fantastic, and I really can't wait to see her in this role. But you know, I know we're going off on a tangent, and that's what we do. We we'll keep it a structured. Tangent, I know. Though. I know. I am so sick already of this oh, fanboy kind of, oh, and the whole Rotten geez. Tomatoes thing. And you're like. Audience ratings drop. It, it hasn't even been released to audiences. What what's wrong with you? It's just the biggest, most babyish thing you'll ever come across. There's, I think it's is it Lucy goes to the movies. There's a, there's a kind of one of the podcasters. I'm not I'm not quite sure of her handle, but she was kind of retweeting. There's a guy in America who's now kind of I'm ripping up my ticket because I'm not allowed to leave a comment for a film I haven't seen. And want to make a comment about how I hate that Captain Marvel is a woman, and this is a whole big thing that woman's going to come and save the MCU. And he's really annoyed about that and can't leave comments about that before the film's out. And you're just like, 
get over yourself. Literally, That's, yeah. I, I said, I did a piece, I know it's up on the website, Shameless Promotion, about the Ghostbusters thing and the kind of backlash when the remake stroke reboot came out a couple of years ago. And I'm so sick of men with fragile masculinity. I really mm. am. I mean, get over yourself, guys. It's like, right, you don't like it, right? And my name's Joe McElroy. And hey, don't, don't you drag my name in the <laughs> That's yeah, a my great intro into whatever Joe's going to say. Yeah. I'm not allowed to say I didn't really like the new Ghostbusters anymore. <laughs> no, um... No, it is ridiculous beyond belief. Like, th- like the idea that you're judging a film before it even comes out with no merit on the actual film yeah. itself. Like, you know, just from that perspective alone, mm-hmm. you're just like, that's ridiculous. And then the fact that it is purely based on the fact that, oh, it's because, you know, it's uh, led by a woman and a female Captain Marvel yeah. doesn't have a penis. And now, now a lot of them are backtracking going, we didn't mind Wonder Woman that much. And it's like, ah, you did though. Yeah. You bloody hated it. And then, same like you were saying with Ghostbusters, it's just a ridiculous way of being. Like, like dare I even throw in the Doctor at that point with Jodie Whittaker and all the kind of a woman couldn't drive a TARDIS. See the thing, a is, woman couldn't use I, a screwdriver. No, but you know I am a bit of a Doctor Who fan. But to be honest, the scripts were just crap. Mm. So that's why that series yeah. just didn't really work. It's just it's not her fault. Yeah, I, and it's the same with Ghostbusters. I didn't really like it, but I think it was more Paul Feig's fault because he'd let them just be too free reign rather than just kind of. Yeah reeling in and being more structured but that's just another thing uh, now on the note of being structured let's get back let's yes, get back but that's to what I mean yes yeah. I was trying to say he was, was bringing it right thank you Jim get back in it <laughs> if the Oscars doesn't need a host the Bandaflex podcast doesn't need a host no god definitely not no. Um, I thought you were going to say we well, were going to host the Oscars and I was like no don't imagine do it'd be great awesome. um, lacklustre um, a good f- a few deserving winners. Olivia Coleman, hundred percent, deserved it. Oh yeah. Um, her wee speech broke my heart. Everything else, Matt, just now. Can I ask you? Key, don't bother. Key thing here. Did you stay up to watch it? No, I like normally I do, but um, I couldn't be bothered. Did you stay um, up to watch it, Joe? No, I didn't. But as soon as I woke up the next day, I literally went into Twitter and I just checked you know, the moment section and said. Green Book wins Best Picture. And I went, oh, for fuck's sake. And just rolled over. I know, it was, the same, it was the same me too. There was like Sky did an Oscar highlights thing. So yeah. I caught up on that. Because yeah, um, I, I had a stupidly early flight ticket because I was over at Glasgow with um, friends, Magda Paddock, uh, who's a contributor on the website. And she every year she makes me go to Glasgow and every year she makes me go to Edinburgh. And we were out and she had sat up purposely to sit and watch it. And I was like, I can't be bothered. It's the, and I said this in the TV show. It is the first year in, in the first year that I'm kind of uh, as a supposed adult where I've said, right, I'm not going to sit up and watch the Oscars. I can't be bothered there. It it all seemed like safe bets and it's safe I mean, jokes and yeah. let's please everybody and S- safe bets. There's better. I could make a list of films that deserve that it. that that weren't nominated that were better. I mean. As much as I loved Olivia Coleman, I do think Rachel Weiss is better in the favorite. But then Rachel Weiss is great in almost everything. I, I, I would say you know as good as she was, and as much as I loved that speech, because that was one of the things I got up. I was because my flight was at seven, so I got up at about half three, and I kind of walked into the living room and Magda was watching the the ceremony, and I was like, right, okay, I'll, and it was kind of you were just seeing. Uh, her speech when you're a little bit overtired and you're not properly well rested yeah like I got a little bit emotional I was just like go on you girly like you're really happy but at the same time I was like uh, well Nicole Kidman was better in Destroyer than you Uh, Emily Blunt was better in A Quiet Place than you Uh, well Emily Blunt it's a tight one I I don't know what I I would just like to see particularly like in sound design and stuff more nods for for something like A Quiet Place yeah that's true but 
Bohemian Rhapsody had a great sound. They just took a Queen soundtrack and put it to a film. That, that, do you know what? That really annoys me because oh. it's the fact that like Bradley Cooper sang live. Yes. He directed the film and they planned it that it would all be done live and yet a film where it's all kind of pre-recorded and they're dubbed <sighs> wins. Yeah. See, see, looking back on that film, right, I know slight tangent again. I went to see Bohemian Rhapsody. When I went, I was very hungover yeah. and I'm a huge Queen fan. So you combine those two elements, and I thought it was the best thing since sliced bread. Mm-hmm. I watched it recently again. Oh, God. <laughs> it's not as anywhere as good as I remember. I, I think it's a, a serviceable, I think it's a serviceable yeah. film. I think it's fine. I think there's a lot of problems. You could talk about kind of behind the scenes with the Brian Singer thing. Let's not go there. Mm. But I thought it was fine. I, I, if, when I sat and watched that here in the audience where we're recording, if you'd have told me how many months after I've, after its release, that Rami Malek would be taking home the Oscar. I would. Oh, I would, I, I literally. Oh would, God! I would. I would have loved to put a bet on at that point and said, "Right, Rami Malek is to win an Oscar for that performance. He's good in it, but there's better performances and better films. That, even yeah. even Christian Bale and Vice. Vice is all over the place, and it's literally Adam McKay doing do the thing we did with Big Short. Let's do it again. It Let's, doesn't work with. Like Let's Vice. do it again. No. In, yeah, with it, in a different situation. But Christian Bale was he was very he good. Was he was good. Yeah, like yeah. It, it's the really point, good. It's the point where like he breaks the fourth wall. And I've always said, oh, you know, the end, yeah. yeah, I've always said this. There's only a few people can do that. One of them is Ferris Bueller, and that's about it. The people that can break the wall, the and fourth wall, do it justice. As yeah, well. and it was excellent because it just it came out of nowhere. I mean, there was there was stuff I like about Vice. And I know Connor Smith from the Thin Air kind of said, you know, I think his it would be a film that if he was a teenager, he would have loved Vice. And I think that's his both the best thing about it and the worst thing about it. And I, that review makes complete sense to me. It It's a mess of a film. I actually think Steve Carell, I'm not sure, did he get nominated? I liked nom- him as Did he, he get, didn't nominated? get nominated? I thought anything, he was no. excellent yeah. in that film, in that role. But uh, I, I'm just being honest. I mean, Even I... Even Sam Rockwell as Bush, Bush was a gag, like, yeah. too. That was really good. I... I went into that thinking that Roma would take home best film, best foreign film, and would kind of win the technical. I thought it would come home with about five or six. I'm not surprised that he won, because I've always said this, the Oscars and the Academy tend to split their awards. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you get rarities like The Shape of Water, which is just lovely. Uh, I can't remember the last film, like even like with... With the Bird. Revenant, maybe? No, it, it was split. Because, I mean, it, The Revenant took on Best Director, but Spotlight, oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. think, took on Best Film. So they usually split. I'm so surprised, because Green Book is so meh. It's blah. It's, you know what it is? It's going to be a film that you'll put on on Sunday afternoon when it's an ITV2, and you'll go, you know what, that was all right. Yeah. And that's it's it. like, because we recently in the TV show, we did Driving Miss Daisy, which is, you know, pretty much, you know, it's... Same as, thing. As, well, as Simon Mayo said, this time, this time the racist is in the front seat. That's, that's the difference. I, yeah. I like Green Book. It's fully serviceable. I think it's a fine film. I know there's a lot of problems in terms of uh, the family members kind of disputing the mm-hmm. narrative and disputing actually what happened. I think it's fine. I remember at London, uh, I think I've told you both this, um, at London it was the mystery film or it was the secret film that played and the buzz about that film then, people were, were losing their minds at the fact this was screening. And I, did, I didn't get to see it. I only, when, when I came back here, and I remember at the time going, right, it's good. 
it's one of those films that is trying to you know take you on a journey and it's not about the the, the distance about the time taken and kind of oh isn't nice about all the kind of characters and it's fine I, I have you said to me that was the best film of the last 12 months no no you know what I actually I was reading about why you know trying to get into the sort of mindset of why it won and money I was reading, bribes no not quite but I wouldn't be surprised either apparently a lot of people talk uh, against Roma because it was a Netflix film. I heard the fact that Netflix apparently have paid more in the push for Roma winning Best Picture. They've paid more than in that alone, in the advertising promotion for that, than they actually paid for Roma itself to make Roma, which kind of staggers my mind. I, I think I've heard, I've heard a similar kind of thing where it's the fact that the Academy is in such a flux at the moment in terms of its membership. This mm-hmm. is why for the next few years you're going to see films like this and maybe kind of left field choices winning as the academy tries to restructure and tries to kind of address the the problems that it has, mm-hmm. that it's Oscar so white. I get a sense that this is a film that they've clearly thought is trying to address that, but in doing so it's so meh. And then when you've got a film like If Beale, if Beale Street Could Talk, which is so much better. Oh, it's incredible. I That's my favourite film so far this yeah. year. I love that film so much. And I'm, I'm actually generally surprised it wasn't up for more Oscars. Yeah. And I love Regina King too. Oh, she, she was deserved great. Mm-hmm. Oh, she deserved her um, best support. She actress. definitely deserved that. Mm. There's just that, not to spoil it, where she meets the uh, the lady who went through the you know ordeal of being raped. Mm-hmm. And just afterwards, she just goes, it's just her reaction yeah. afterwards when she knows that's it, the, the, the case is finished and I can't go any further with yeah. it. Oh, it's just, that's the moment I was like, she deserves it. That's her like Oscar moment, if you, yeah. if you will. It's an excellent film, and I would love to see it get more love. You know, in terms of highlights, it's hard not to have a soft spot for the Spike Lee moment, and particularly oh, when you've got God. Samuel he L. Jackson. <laughs> especially when you've got Samuel L. Jackson giving him the award, and yeah. you've just go, that's kind of just perfect. And again, Black Can- Black Klansman was another film I'd love to, to have see had get more, more love. Yeah, yeah. it was I, really I, good. Like I if I it. if I said to, if I put Green Book or Black Klansman, what is the better film? What has more interesting things to say, and what is more relevant to now, to society now? Black Klansman, and I, I know I know Spike Lee does the kind of typical Spike Lee moment, and he tries to force that that message down down our throats in the final couple of minutes. It's not a spoiler to say in the final few minutes of Black Klansman, I don't know whether enough the film had taken that out, whether it might have had more an effect, but. Black Klansman to me again is a film right now in terms of society where we are is much more relevant than say Green Book. Yeah, because even up to that point, I was like, you know what, I get it. It's it it's hit the nail on the head, and then it does go that bit further to making it relevant yeah. today. But I was like, yeah, but I already got that. You didn't really need to do that. But at the same time, you know, I am kind of glad he did because he by that I think he was trying to appeal to a broader audience yeah. who may not yeah. be as you know open to it. Yes. Yeah, yes, bingo. Um, but yeah, I just love the way he took against Green Book. Yeah, <laughs> wasn't that the BBC? Like, yeah, the, he was like, "Oh, uh, he went to the two journalists." Is like, "Oh, you're British, you're British." And after they asked, right. like, "Oh, did you like uh, Green? Why didn't you like Green Book?" And he just went, "Oh, not my cup of tea." That's <laughs> right. And he thought he was, and then he was like, "Ah, laughing." He was absolutely he was blocked as well too. Yeah. yeah. Did any use? I don't know. I mean, I was listening because I was getting my flight that morning. I was listening to Five Live, and they had Colin Patterson there, and they had Jeff Goldblum being interviewed, and Jeff Goldblum. In full Jeff Goldblum mood at like 
what time was I there? About six o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. and just kind of talking about go and have your scrambled eggs and kippers, and it's all gonna be okay. Uh, Olivia Coleman won the. It was it was it was it was just kind of weird and surreal. Listen to headphones and just kind of completely kind of a state of emotional. And I was re-listening to Olivia Coleman because they kept replaying it, and I was like in the airport, kind of go. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get all emotional. Come on, be a man. Be a man. But anyway, anyway, anyway uh, anything else kind of before we kind of go on about the Oscars? And just generally, the Academy Awards, as I say, now is the time for the big blockbusters to, to come back. They've been hiding. None of this worthy worthiness. We're going to have big, mediocre blockbusters now clogging up the cinemas until Academy Awards season next year. But just kind of before we move on, your thoughts on how awards season has been for you? Well, I mean, you know, speaking of blockbusters, like Black Panther, like I was very shocked that they, I mean, I loved Black Panther, I thought it was a brilliant film, um, but, you know, of memory, I don't I don't really remember the last time a blockbuster like that was ever nominated for anything. Dark Knight. And, oh yeah, I suppose. Because I think it had, had held the record, I think it won two, and now Black Panther, I think, didn't it three take three? Four. It took three. Mm-hmm. Three or four, mm-hmm. and, you know, rightfully so for best costume. You know, yep. costume design. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have the the yeah, the Wakanda. This significance of that for the first uh, black woman to ever win for costume that particular design. award. I yeah. think it's fantastic. Kind of. Well, hang on. I was the first woman to ever win for costume design. No black. Black. Oh, first, yeah, sorry, first black woman oh, to ever sorry, win. Got a bit lost. Okay. Oh, very good. Yeah. Um, rightly so. Yeah, I mean, in, not that I was surprised, um, but I don't think given what blockbusters are going to come up this year, I don't think... I, I would be very surprised if any of them end up getting nominated for an Oscar. You'll have to really? Black Panther 2. Mm. Oh or just God. maybe like special effects or something like that. But yeah. Beyond well, that, actually... But beyond, you know... Do you know what? And I was listening to another podcast and they did the exact same thing. Let's not forget Into the Spider-Verse took home for Best Animated. Mm-hmm. And I... And we have an expletive record. Joe's already... We have an expletive rating. Joe's already cursed. I fucking love Spider-Verse. It's, you know, I'm not afraid to admit it. I had a little cry at Spider-Verse, but then as we've already gathered, I seem to I seem to just walk through every day just having a cry at something. Spider-Verse is amazing. Have you have you both seen it? No. No, uh, haven't oh. seen it yet. No, I'll, I'll catch it when do, you say it. It's, again, I can't claim it. And although I had, and I can show it here, I had scribbled it down in my notes. When Connor Smith was on the TV show, he kind of said, it's the first film of all the comic book movies that reminded him of when he was younger of reading and flicking the pages and reading comic books. And I had made the point there in my, in my little scribble notes when I go see it, Connor got there first and was like, you bastard. <laughs> so, stealing your life. Yeah, no, stealing my kind of thoughts. <clears throat> but no, uh, Spider-Verse, I think it's out in April on DVD and Blu-ray here. I know we'll definitely be looking to look at it again. It is, you know, Sony have been struggling to figure out what to do with Spider-Man. You know, now they've brought him back into the MCU this is what they want to do. And it's, of course, the guys behind uh, the Lego movie who've done it. And they've just, once again, like they did the first time round with the Lego movie, less so the second time, they they, they just struck gold. And they did. So mm-hmm. I, w- I would recommend anyone watch I'll it. I'll give it a watch, yeah. Yeah, yeah same here. Yeah, and, and with that, you know, I think we'll move away from the Oscars and we'll move to our first review of the night. And that is The Hole in the Ground. It's out this week in cinemas, uh, directed by Lee Cronin. And Therese, you're going to be leading on this. Mm-hmm. So just before... We play a clip of the film. Give us a bit of setup. Um, so basically, Hole in the Ground is set around a mother and son who have recently moved out to a new house, kind of in rural Ireland, really. Um, following just some complications in their life. Um, and 
in short, after a few nights there, um, the mother just starts to realise there's something not really right with her son. And it's more so her struggle as to find out what's what's up with him. Okay, so let's play a clip of the hole in the ground. Mum? Never run off me like that again, okay? There with me loud knocks come a knocking on There's something not right with him lately. I can't put my finger on it, but down by the I know. So that's a clip of the film. I know we have a little interview with the director to play after this, but just kind of generally, before we hear from Lee Cronin, Trez, I know we've all seen this, mm-hmm. um, but Trez, lead the way. What was your thoughts on the film? Um, I, enjoy, I did actually enjoy it. Um, you know, I, I, I do like car films. I think all three of us sitting here, we, we do enjoy them as much yeah. as you can enjoy a scary film. Um, but it's probably one of the first kind of you know, locally ish mm. horror films that I've really enjoyed and it, it's it's credible enough. Um I mean the only other one that sticks in my head is Shrooms, which is just terrible. Um but yeah, you know to me, um I seen a lot of hereditary in this. Mm-hmm. Um Well I think when you, you I think you draw those parallels anyway, but I think they're furthered by the fact that it's A twenty four. Are involved whether or not you think like that, but A twenty four the kind of the distributors for her. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, they're involved in the hole in the ground. So I think that it draws those parallels, and it draws the parallels with like the hereditary and Babadook mm-hmm. as well, and that kind of that kind of, and I don't know if it's the correct term, but that kind of pedophobic sentimentality, that that fear of children, and that kind of the and kind what of, they can do, yeah, and with that like art house horror touched yeah. it, yeah. Um, you know, I suppose the look and the feel kind of, it reminded me of Hereditary and, you know, kind of the, the storyline. But I think as well, um, I know we were all on the podcast together talking about Hereditary and it was, the scurry parts weren't actually the scurry mm-hmm. parts, so to say. It was the relationship between the mother and the son and but I think that's what kind of terrified me more, um, you know, post his weird superhuman strength and the most it's disgusting changed. ever eaten of oh spaghetti. my god that, <laughs> what, and not, not quite spaghetti but okay <laughs> something with stringy legs anyway um before i watched it the only kind of actor that i, I re- recognized was james cosmo people mm-hmm. known from game of thrones he's just the loveliest loveliest person um, ever have you met him mm-hmm. oh I, he just has like a nice wee I wanted to give Clean him. A, he's like a big Scottish Santa. I oh, wanted to give him a big hug, and he's playing a lovely, lovely character in this as well. Oh, Albeit yeah. one who's got a wife that's clearly a bit mental. And initially, and I deceased. thought there was something like, you know, what's up? Like you're playing about, and then when it turns out it's not, I was like, oh, that, that's nice. Um, but yeah, like it, 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 it's a de- decent storyline too, mm-hmm. up until a point. Now, I, I do, and I mean, I have problems with. I know this isn't a spoiler cast, yeah. and I, I'm, I'll kind of let you talk, and then I'll come back to you with my problems. Mm-hmm. I have issues with it, but um, just kind of going, just I kind of intervened there, Therese. Yeah, no, um, I would say, I would say, probably some of the issues I will agree with when you bring mm-hmm. them up because some of them are very evident. Um, but I wasn't aware of any of the other actors or actresses in the film, and I thought they were all, you know, 
pretty good. Like the mother, her name's Shauna. Um, I think we tried to pronounce yeah. the... Kerslake or something. Apologies, Shauna, if you're listening. You might not be, but if you are... An Irish podcast, um, get your name wrong. Sorry. Um, but she was brilliant and you can, you know... As a mother who's kind of out on her own in this royal sense, regardless of her son behaving in a weird way. Do you know what I love, right? And I know I'm kind of buttoning in. And it was Jim McMorrow, because Jim McMorrow was on the TV show talking about mm-hmm. this. And we talked about this after the recording, so it's not going to be on air. But Jim was kind of saying what he loved about it. And Jim is a horror guy. He said the fact that usually when you get that kind of, those type of films with a kind of possessed child or kind of the, the child's a wrong. And it's the fact that the child starts to act like in a weird or terrifying way. Mm-hmm. The kid is is lovely. I mean, other than the fact his few little moments of super strength and as you kind of mentioned, his weird eating choices, mm-hmm. he's actually kind of the loveliest. Hello, mummy. And he just loves his mummy. Like yeah. you can tell he just loves her. Like, I love you, mummy. Even, you know, bits. He doesn't call people anus heads or anus face no. anymore. That's right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's scientific. They, yeah. you know, they, they hint that there's been issues with the dad in the past and yeah. stuff and um, you know at one point it's not really a spoiler but he kind of cracks up at the mummy and then mm-hmm. two seconds later he's like mummy I'm really, really sorry and then mm-hmm. you're like oh and then whenever he does start going weird you're like oh, just go back to the other way yeah. like it's okay um, but no like I enjoyed it and I think that you know um, on its release I think a lot of people will be very surprised mm-hmm. um, and you know it's good to see that there is Films, I guess, coming out of, yeah, of totally Ireland, um, and stylistically as well. Like it's, it it's just shot very well too, mm. um, and a lot of the, I suppose the cuts in certain bits. We alluded to the certain eating choices, but there'll be one bit where people will kind of be freaked out, yeah. um, with spaghetti. But yeah, no, I I did enjoy. Is it, it. not a, a testament, right? You the scene you're alluding to, and it's in the trailer, so he. He has a kind of little kind of bit of fast food on the go with mm-hmm. with speeders, right? That didn't horrify me, but the fact eating spaghetti oh, th- it just was, turned it was, me. It was just that cut. It was that like quick cutting yeah. straight away, and it was. I was like, oh! it, no, it was disgusting. <laughs> and then because it happened so quickly after eating the spider, and I mean, like, if I heard him crunch that spider, I heard him digest it. And that, again, I would say that's not the bit that freaked me out. Yeah. And the fact that it happened so quick, like, I, I was watching on my tablet and I threw my tablet. I was like, ugh. <laughs> and it was like, oh, no, he's only eating spaghetti. It's all right. And I lifted it back up. Um, crack screen. But, you know, it, yeah. like it's it's genius in that way, you know. And there's there's a lot of other shots in the film like that where you think something scary is really yeah. going to happen. And then it turns to something completely normal and then you freak out. Trez, you've been talking a little while now, sharing your thoughts of film. But before we go any further, I caught up earlier this week with Lee Cronin, the film's director. And let's hear that interview. Lee, just to, to start me off, tell me, without going into spoilerific detail, give me a bit of a setup about the, the hole in the ground. Sure. So The Hole in the Ground is a psychological horror movie about a young mother, young single mother, and her eight-year-old son. And um, they have moved to a new home, leaving a little bit of a dark past behind. And in this new place that they live, they discover this enormous sinkhole in the earth near their house. And, and after that discovery, things start to change in their relationship. And the mother starts to wonder if her son's identity has been altered or changed somehow because of this sinkhole. So it's kind of a, a psychological mystery. Um, but that also brings in some other more uh, more terrifying elements to it as well. 
Tell me a little bit of the casting process and the assembling the cast for the feature. You have, um, you've got Shauna, who I absolutely adored, and mm-hmm. uh, a date from Ave Mary. I mean, was that where you you seen her? Is that where you can, was this a role written with her in mind? Or talk me through the process of assembling the cast for the feature. It, it wasn't actually at all. So I'd written the character quite a bit older and I'd probably written her in a little bit more of a stock horror mother way then the character ended up and I'd missed a day from Ad Mary. I was living abroad at the time and I just hadn't had a chance to catch it. And we had done a list and Shauna wasn't on that list because we were casting to a different kind of demographic, I suppose, for want of a better description. Um, and it was my producer. I'd always give credit to him. He said, take a look at Shauna, take a look at Mad Mary. And my initial response was, but she's not, she doesn't fit the bill at all. He was like, watch it. And I watched it and I called, like within minutes of finishing the film, I called up and said like, let's have a meeting with Shauna. And I met her, we had a coffee. She'd, re- she'd read the screenplay with a coffee, we talked about the character. And by that evening, I'd said, tear up that list and offer her the role, and that was it. So there was no traditional audition process, there was no taping. It was just a conversation and a sense of understanding um, what she could bring to the role, which, which was the right choice, I think. Yeah, and what about the, the role of Chris? A trickier, you know, casting, you know, an eight-year-old boy is a tricky prospect. Um, so there's more due diligence done in terms of making sure we saw a wide range of kids with different performance styles and different personalities. Um, but James Quinn Markey, who plays Chris, he was kind of always in the running. Um, he was always, whatever conversation we're having, you kind of sometimes group like three or four young performers together and get them to perform together. Or you'd be kind of sizing up, should we go this route or this route? But James was always in the conversation. And at the end, it came down to him and one other young fella. And like that process... We did chemistry tests with Sean. You, re- you really go through it and you're trying to get to know the parents as well as part of the process. How are they going to cope and understand, you know, what you're trying to do, particularly when you're making a horror movie, um, which, you know, has some challenges both physically but also emotionally and how you're going to protect them and make sure that everybody's comfortable because you have to be very, very cautious when you're working with a young performer that they're first and foremost protected. One of the things I'm... Tra- this is me going off. Go off. Go off. off, off. Go off One of the things I'm intrigued from watching the film, just when you mentioned chemistry, the, the mother-son, mother-daughter relationship, you, you want that loving and this naturalistic chemistry test. Yeah. Because there, whilst there's a little bit of that in that, were you kind of the challenge for you to try and find a chemistry kind of that, that, that didn't work, that didn't feel natural because of the way, without going into spoilers, in the way in which the drama unfolds and there's so much that's central as heart of a mother who does not believe that this is her song. Yeah, a, li- a little bit. I think we wanted there to be a naturalistic vibe early on in the story, which we developed through some like kind of like uh, like mother and son camp. We'd spend, I'd be part of, we'd spend time together and we'd talk about it and we'd rehearse scenes. But yeah, like a huge part of that film is this kind of slow shift in his personality. But James is actually in a way the key to that because he had the ability, he had to play a normal kid and then an ever so slightly normal kid. Not a kid that's all the way over here. Because then it's like the game is up and it's just he's super creepy from the get-go. So I think his ability to do that coupled with Shauna's ability to just slowly unravel through that situation I think is what made it work because ultimately it does become quite a dysfunctional uh, relationship again without giving anything away. One thing again, I was because this is your directorial debut. Yeah, feature debut. You, yeah. What was that process like with Steven? Is, is, with that co-writing process, or is someone kind of the dialogue guy? Is someone the big picture guy? What was the kind of the genesis for this yeah. feature then between the two of you? How did that unpack to the final? Feature? Yeah, so I'd written a draft on my own, which was quite an unwieldy, larger version of the story with a lot more. There was other timelines. It was it was a different, very different film to what we made. 
and I was working also working directing ads at the time and I was feeling like I was not getting the time I wanted with this project so me and Stephen had you know kind of hooked up and we'd written a pilot together and we'd enjoyed doing it and then I suggested that he might want to come on board this project with me and he you know suggested some things about the script I had and the idea that I had and it kind of just fit and there was no real necessarily rhyme or reason I tend to find the way we work have worked to date is one of us takes the weight when we can in a lot of ways so and that could sometimes simply be something like I'm struggling with this scene can you have a go but we would a lot of the work that we do is in the kind of the smaller scale we'll really work on just structurally scene by scene by scene what the mechanics would be of the story and how it would work and a lot of what if like you know I think that there's a there's a moment with a spider in the film I think that very much came from a could you imagine if and we'd, we'd pitch these kind of ideas around see what would stick and see what wouldn't stick and then you write and you write and you write till it's ready, and then you, you keep on writing some more. And then by the, even when we're shooting, we were we were rewriting every weekend. When you get to when you write tune, you know what does that relationship become like? Because at the same time, you're the director, yeah. As well, what way does that? Is there a dynamic change in that relationship, or is it still there's kind of a democracy between the two? I think it's just trust. I think ultimately, you know, directors are there to direct that script. Yeah. And the directors sometimes have to make decisions that a writer may not agree with. And sometimes I'd make a decision even on something that I would love. But as a director, I'm kind of thinking, I don't think, even though I love this moment, I don't think it's the right thing to do. So you would adapt it slightly. But it was actually pretty collaborative, you know. And there's a certain fear when you make a debut feature. You're, you're very much, maybe as time goes by and cynicism grows over the years, that'll change. But, you know, we were all just batting in the same direction. How can we make this as good as we possibly can? I wanted to talk generally with this feature, I mean, what are the influences? I kind of from watching it again on a small screen. I'm, I'm kind of there's nods to kind of Kubrick. There's definitely a shining esque opening to sure. the opening feature. There's wallpaper that's shining esque. Yeah, a Lovecraftian kind of stuff yeah. in there. I was thinking of the old days of kind of my mother talking about like idea of like the Chainsmen and sure. Irish folklore. Can you can you talk me through like for you again without kind of getting into spoilers, but kind of some of the influences and kind of some of the, the things you drew inspiration from for the feature? Yeah, I think like my influences in horror were shaped at a very young age. I'm the youngest in my family by the guts of a decade. So I saw at eight or nine, when they were all like 15, 16, 17, I saw stuff I shouldn't have seen. Um, and The Shining I saw at eight years old and it's had a major impact on me as a filmmaker. And, you know, I'm I'm quite proud of my influences and how I will use them and, and, and kind of twist and distort them. I think in anything in music and in film, people are always leaning on their influences and then it's how you adapt them or use them in certain ways. Um, so that, yeah, and I, I'm also as a child of Spielberg, so I take a lot of a lot of lead in terms of that kind of technical filmmaking and the relay of imagery or how you could use a shot that can evolve from a close-up into something much wider. You know, I, I'm always drawn to that. And then in terms of folklore, like what I like about Irish folklore particularly is you don't need to go and just take a whole story and make it. You could, it's almost like this little bag of seeds, like these nuggets of ideas. So, you know, there's a thousand ways of, of framing the change in mythology. And there's a number of ways that that exists on paper as well, you know, in terms of, in terms of how people uh, tell a story. You can, you can dip in as opposed to necessarily having to fully take a story. I wasn't looking to try and define the changeling myth. I was actually just looking to lean into certain areas of Irish folklore and bring them into a kind of contemporary space and use them as part of the story. And I think that is something that is is great about, you know, Irish myth and legend is that there's lots of versions of stories and lots of, sometimes they're quite poetic. They're not even necessarily a story. It's just an idea or, or a theme or something like that. So it's nice to be able to 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 do that, but also to, to modernise it a little too. One of the things we mentioned before the record, of course, was Sundance. Yeah. For yourself, 
even just as a filmmaker, the draw of Sundance, and I think it was part of the Midnight program as yeah. well, which has its own kind of cult vibe as sure. well. Can you talk me through your, your memories of that experience and kind of the how much of a kind of platform that was for yeah. you and for this film? Yeah, so Sundance is, you know, for any independent filmmaker, I think a, a world premiere at Sundance is something that you're going to, if it's not top of your list, it's going to be it's going to be pretty damn close to, to what you want. Um, and we knew quite early, actually. We knew really early that, that Sundance wanted the film. So it was quite a long, almost arduous wait to, to, to go and present the film. And we had to kind of sit tight and sit tight on the news um, of our premiere. So by the time we got there, we were just... We were just ready. We just wanted the film. And we also, I think a little bit different to our Sundance experience, we went with distribution in place. For a lot of independent filmmakers, you're going to find that distribution. So we went with US distribution in place already. So there was a certain pressure off us, but that doesn't change the fact that the film is about to be presented to the world, which is just terrifying. You know, and it is, even though it's a great level or Sundance because no, you can't pick out the hierarchy because everybody's wearing this, you know, big coats and, and big boots and they're a bit chilly. You know, and everyone, everyone's nose is a bit red. No one seems like a star. So you kind of can't tell who in the room is of importance. And, you know, so it was a very, very tense screening that you have when you, when you and it's at midnight. So you're waiting, it's, a, it's waiting as long as you possibly could on your premiere day to put the film on. Um, but it was, a, from that point on, it was really positive and reviews started to emerge the next morning and they were very strong and, you know, word of mouth started to get really strong off the back of it as well. And then for myself and Shauna, we just got dragged into this kind of, positive maelstrom for one better description of just of press and meetings of like I know for Shauna she was supposed to go to LA for two or three days after Sundance and she ended up being there for two weeks such was the level of interest in her and and rightfully so as well which is which is really great so yeah it's like you know only time will tell if it's if it's a career changing moment but it certainly felt felt like it is you mentioned US distribution you have A24 yeah I mean how did that come about and there's a certain brand association yeah. with, with what they do they do do more than horror of course but they there do. is those brands that make me think of it that comes at night we think of uh, hereditary yeah and uh, films like that i mean kind of how that kind of came about and then that brand association is that something then that you see now do you think that's going to help the film in terms of finding its audience or do you, is that something you want it to kind of sit on its on its own merits and be not be judged in comparison, but basically in its own. I think it's a little bit of both. If I was being really, really honest, like having, they're, they're a great distributor to have on board. They're, you know, they get behind the film. Like they were behind the film from very early on. So they actually got involved with the film when it was still at edit stage. They saw three minutes of the film at a market event and they read the screenplay and then they, they made an offer to be our US distributor. Um, so I had very little involvement in that process, really. It's just, it was brought to me as a piece of news. and. It was, wasn't a piece of news that I was going to be unhappy with. I was really, really excited to be working with them because of their track record. Um, but equally, like, you know, we're, we are our own film and it's, it's, there's obvious comparisons that are made because we, paid, we played the same slot in Sundance as Hereditary, but, but we're not. And Hereditary is an amazing film, um, but we would like to be judged as our kind of, you know, the film be judged as, as its own piece of work. And um, it's got a very different, uh, you know, I'd almost say Hereditary is like a scream. The hole in the ground is a little bit like a whisper. Um, and it, but yeah, and we've we've got um, again a very different kind of tone and identity. Would have been an Irish film as well. The idea of, of what we perceive as the screen queen and the kind of the, those kind of rules, it's it's very much changing. Like for you, someone clearly got a love for horror. How do you think it, the genre is changing 
and kind of do you think how do you think in the sense of this is much more something that explores the psychological aspects yeah there's kind of there's aspects of depression there's kind of a, a pedophobic pedophobic kind of sentimentality mm -hmm. to an extent going in there how do you get that sense that we see films because my typical long rumble dancer myself and Jim McMorrow we were local filmmakers here we talk about how films like The Exorcist mm -hmm. they won't happen anymore because mm -hmm. we don't let film filmmakers too many people the quick fix the, the quick the gore fix mm -hmm. but films like Hereditary this are coming along do you think there's a sense that we're going to see those type of psycho more psychological aspects of, of horror come back there's always these words that are used to define horror and I keep just as someone tries to nail it down I think it always just squiggles away like the freak that it is and then and then goes again like a few years ago it was always about you know elevated genre you know elevated horror and now it's prestige is the word that's being used I think what it comes down to is people that are just paying attention to character and I think even with The Exorcist although there is some cheap thrills in a movie like that it still was very much about you know a mother's struggle um, with, uh, with her child and I think you know and I think if you join the dots from something like The Exorcist right the way through to the sort of horror movies that are being made now, there's been a lot of different things along the way. Like there was the slasher era. There was so I don't know this this whole kind of take this psychological kind of slower burn, more under the skin. You know, maybe focus on family grief and dread and you know domestic circumstance that that might burn out and something else may may take over. But I think part of why it's working is because because there's just strong characterization and their stories that people can identify with you know about universal themes and my last question kind of you're still kind of the thoughts and this is kind of the, of, of recent memory this is kind of the of Irish horror because I mean there was something like the canal which mm -hmm. I've seen in 2014 and mm -hmm. I absolutely adored and um, we've seen films like that emerging I mean your thoughts on the kind of the Irish horror scene the local yeah. scene I know here in Belfast we had Braxton which was a, a locally made slasher horror movie and um, and I, I know I was speaking to Paddy Breton about this with films like Shrooms mm -hmm. that kind of were there and kind of seemed to kind of, I think 2012, but your kind of thoughts on the kind of the Irish horror scene, kind of what about it here locally excites you? I think it's fresh, actually, in a lot of ways. Like it, and it hasn't been fully defined yet what it, what it can be. So I think it's a really interesting time because there's filmmakers that I probably grew up on a similar diet of movies mm -hmm. that I did, or at least you know, within the same kind of space and those influences seem to be feeding their way through now. Um, I think there's a dark heart in Ireland that we can mine in these kind of stories as well. Like, you know, I think for an outsider, you know, there's that aspect of Ireland being fun and games, which it is, but there's also those kind of darker tales and, you know, there's kind of the, the uh, even from the folklore through to, you know, even some kind of contemporary horrors that exist in our society. So I think it's, it's really, really, um, just really fertile territory. And I, I don't think... I'm the only one that's tapping into it. Um, I think that there's a number of people coming through. So it'll be, I'm intrigued, actually, to see what comes with it. Really intrigued. And this is my last question. Yeah, I, go for I, it. I lie all the time. You kind of just you mentioned kind of your thoughts with the playing to Sundance now from like it's the first of March. This film's going to be on general release. Yes. Irish audience are going to get a chance to see that. Just your kind of thoughts and your, of what it's going to feel like letting the Irish audience see this film. I, you know, a home audience watching the movie is the thing that excites me most. I remember saying this from the get-go, like I'm an internationally focused filmmaker and I try and make stories that I feel can play in different countries and we we're seeing that with how the film has been, has caught on with distribution across the world. But the home audience for me is what it's all about. Like, you know, it's a basic human thing. Like you want to impress your friends, you want to impress your mates and, you know, your peers and the, the people that are around you. So, you know, it's a, I'm not going to lie, it's a real, when you see your poster on the side of the bus driving past you in the street, it's a massive, massive boost. You know, you don't make a ton of money making independent movies. 
so these little victories actually they they really have value in terms of like you know you going again and wanting wanting to work it more but i'm just i guess i'm excited for irish audiences maybe to taste um this type of horror maybe they haven't quite had an irish horror movie like this before um and to have that kind of that shared experience um with, with something from the genre that feels uniquely irish whilst also feeling like it it could could happen anywhere um so yeah i'm just genuinely humble and excited that it's you know i think we're close to a hundred locations now that it's going out in ireland which is mind-boggling at one point you know i would have been happy with one you know but then your ambition builds and then i go okay well look 20 or 30 would be amazing but you know i think i think the film's going out on more screens than like a horror a u.s studio released horror would get here so yeah i'm i'm really buzzed about it So that's my interview with Lee Cronin and Joe. We've been talking now for a little while about the film, so uh, what's your thoughts on The Hole in the Ground? Uh, I'm kind of along the same lines as Trez. Uh, I did like it uh, to a point, but uh, as a whole, I think it's a good, solid piece of horror, and it's nice to see something coming from Ireland uh, being produced by A24, who's like Mm -hmm. a pretty big uh, distributor for They're They're distributing it in America, and I think it's Mm -hmm. Vertigo. Oh, in the UK now? Vertigo, I think, are are distributing it here. I think that's why it's working there. Look, I like this a lot. I have problems with it, but what I do see, though, is a lot of potential. Mm -hmm. I see the potential of a filmmaker who knows the kind of... Knows what to do within the genre. Knows the kind of reference points. There's deliberate nods to stuff like The Shining. There's definitely a bit of Invasion of the Body Snatchers in there. Now, I've seen this. I think you've both seen this on the small screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I watched I, it on TV. I, I've seen it on the small screen and the, on the big screen. The small screen, it, it didn't really grab me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's possibly because, you know, we've talked about this in the past with films like Roma. I think the way that the, the film's design the soundscape i think it's designed like all films ultimately to be seen on the big screen when i saw on the big screen at the qft on the monday night i was much more positive about it and you can definitely see in the sound design that there's sequences where she's walking out in the forest and it's just her point of view and you can see there that, that yeah. was my favorite sequence in the yeah. whole thing you know in terms of sheer horror that although was perfect idea. weirdly she goes out and she gets horrified by the forest but then like 20 minutes later she's out jogging in it but uh, but that's night and day that, <laughs> yeah that, that, that come actually, on Joe no that's why it worked for me like growing up in a countryside where similar so conditions so did I aye, but, so, so did I, but aye, I mean, so I could happily walk through forest during the day no bother but it would scare the living hell out of me the night before you but know? did you the forest that you walked through did have a big scary looking hole in the middle no, of it but there was a load of like sheep carcasses and we couldn't explain why <laughs> they were there I know do you know Jim, Joe's uh, not hungry he just wants to feed like well, she purposely runs past the hole yeah, yeah. initially like I'd, 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 what I didn't get about morning, why didn't she kind of bring it up more with her friends? Like, yeah, there's this big giant sinkhole near the house. Like, what's like, that about? Have you ever seen that before? Yeah, no, like, I've never seen a sinkhole that. No, literally, no, that's all. what I'm saying. Never if been. I was sitting on, you know, having dinner, I'd be Aye. like, here, never mind about your life. There's a massive yeah. sinkhole that literally looks like there's dead bodies in it out my garden. Yeah, it's like, I don't care who the hell you punch on a Friday night. Oh, there's I a big shit. bloody yeah. hole in the ground there. Enough <laughs> of this talking about the kids' talent show. What about... Exactly. You, yeah. Who cares about the rattling bog? There's literally a rattling bog Joe, out I the do. back Joe, of my house. Joe cares I about the rattling, the rattling bog. bog. The bog down in the valley. 
I yeah. love that sequence. That, that is probably oh one God, of my favorite so sequences. Yeah. And it's the fact, and then it's the fact, you know something's happening, and you see by her, then it's kind of how his voice is slowed down, mm-hmm. and then it's kind of left, it's just her and him. My problem with the hole in the ground is, what I've said before, I always like when a horror film gets underneath my skin and stays there. Films like Hereditary crawled underneath my skin and are still there, rattling mm. around somewhere. This film for me scratched and scratched and scratched and tried to, but never quite got underneath my skin and never stuck with me in the way other films had. And then it kind of, in the last 10, 15 minutes, mm-hmm. the pace just goes up. Because what I've loved about it is that all the way up until that point, it kind of moves away from the conventions and the tropes and kind of it, it toys with our, our kind of expectations, as you were kind of alluding yeah. to earlier, Andres. And then it just kind of goes into this kind of descent esque kind of finale. And you kind of think of, like, as I say, Invasion of Body Snatchers, you think of uh, even kind of like Irish folklore, like the stuff like the Changeling and all that stuff yeah. for the fairies. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I was left a little underwhelmed by it, but at the same time, I sit back and go, I want to see where this director goes to next. Now, I was talking to a couple of uh, filmmakers after the screening, and my fear for someone like Lee Cronin and it's not me. I mean, I'm not his agent. I'm not here. And I mean, I've met the guy. He's he's lovely, and we had a really good talk about stuff, which you'll hear. My fear, but but my fear for him though, is that someone like Lee Cronin then on the back of this gets signed up to do something like the Nun Two. He gets signed up like to do Blum something. House. Gets yeah. signed up to do well, not Blumhouse. Blumhouse seem to be good. They're they're good at what they do, but when you get like the Warner Brothers and the Conjuring universe, it's mm. very much right. James Wan set the blueprint. That's how we're going to do it. And that's what we want you to do. Just copy everything. Yeah, it's basically, one. it's a hit because of this. So this is what you have to do. Like, don't put your own yeah. touch or stamp on it. You have to follow James yeah. Wan's stamp. And I mean, you look at, I mean, I, I know, is it The Hallow with Karen Hardy? I know he's an English filmmaker. He's slightly different. Yeah. But uh, I love that film, maybe because it had Michael Smiley and there was a gloopy kind of, kind of sentiment to it. But, you then see a filmmaker like that then going off and getting swallowed by the Conjuring universe with the nun. And there's none of there's none of Karn Hardy that you can really see. You see a, a filmmaker trying to imitate James Wan. That's just me. And it's it, I know it's me and my pedestal. I, I do want to come back. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's kind of damning with false praise to say this is the, the best Irish horror film because I don't think there has been many. We've seen stuff like, well, you can kind of throw the hollow in there, the canal, which I, I really, really like. Um, you've mentioned shrooms. Mm-hmm. Actually, one you need these mentions is the Devil's Doorway, which was out last year. I actually really like that. Okay, it's a found footage uh, sort of horror film um, set within sort of the Magdalen laundries mm-hmm. where there's oh god, dis- I want to watch it. They suspect that one of the girls is possessed, and it's actually it puts a good spin on the found footage. Cause yeah. I, when I found out, oh no, it's found footage. I kind of like don't like this genre at all. And then when I watched, it, I was like. It's actually really well done. I like the spin they have. Well, on. this is the thing. So it's a connection to Ireland too, really. Because yeah. I know it's, it's, I thought it was very Ashley good. Clark, local filmmaker yeah. here from Belfast. I have to hold my hand up and say I haven't seen it. I've heard a lot of good things about it, but my problem is, and you've mentioned it, it's fine footage. And I mean, you can, if, I know we're kind of trying this new format. And we're trying to be as concise as we can. If you want to go off and mention it, you know, and, and kind of, if you want to give a very quick review of it, Forrest Job, Ashley Clark, I've heard kind of talking on Twitter and I, I hear the how high, high, highly rated she is, so I'm willing to give it a go. I just have to hold my hand and say I haven't seen it and it's purposely because it's found footage. But right. you you have seen it and just kind of whilst we're here talking about Irish horror, 
you know, because yeah. I know, I know it's available to buy. You now you can buy yeah, it through Amazon yeah. Prime and uh, that. But yeah, no, just quickly, I think she does a good job in terms of, you know, like I said, putting a spin on the found footage mm-hmm. genre. Because usually my main problem is why would you still be holding a camera at this stage? But the thing is, the idea behind it is these two priests have to document everything for mm-hmm. the Vatican in order to prove right is this a genuine case of exorcism or is it a fake or okay. is it psychological issues or whatever. And the well, then, is, does it work then in the fact? And I know that again, I'm only saying because I haven't seen this. You know, my other big thing with found footage is there has to be a believable, believable reason as to how we have got this footage. Mm, that's true. Oh, it's it's a, it's yeah. ar- no, it is archive footage, okay. and then when you actually do watch it, you're like, okay, well, like, is it set? back in the month you know oh, 60s in the heights okay and it is those kind of cameras that i think it is like a four three sort of format the way mm-hmm. it's, it's shot so it does look like you know you're actually watching just video footage from back then and uh no no i i really i i was surprised at how much i actually generally liked it okay. after fine night it was fine footage because okay. originally i thought it was just a straight horror film and i was like oh it's you know an yeah. irish filmmaker uh, with a horror film set in the Magdalene's, and she actually does use that setting to to affect you know about you know the abuse and that okay. that occurred during there. So like she does understand her setting, and she doesn't exploit it too much. She just plays it to you know a twist to re- no not just twist as such, but it, it does work in that sense too. But it reinforces the actual you know real horror mix with the sort of supernatural oh, yeah. horror you know, and it, it's it's perfect blend of the two. I thought in it. Well, I I will give yeah. it a go. As I say, I am the person who. Hand and heart said, look, I, I'm willing to give it a go. And then someone said to me, oh, it's found footage. And I went, I mean, I, I've just had that issue because found footage, after the success of Blair Witch, and, you know, even probably the, the best one probably since then is something like Wreck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was just, it was an excuse for a low budget. And that was their way of kind of saying stuff. And then there's so many, when you watch found footage stuff, it's like, well, how are you getting this shot? How exactly are you feasibly getting this shot yeah. and be able to? I'm thinking of stuff like there's uh, like, like VHS, s- like the VHS yeah. ones. Like I have, I mean, I've seen some of them, but mm-hmm. I haven't seen them all. Mm-hmm. I've seen, I think it's there's, I think I seen VHS two. Yeah, there's three, I think. Yeah. But not the sling mud either. But the maker of Paranormal Activity seems like a scumbag from a like podcasters mm-hmm. that says like I didn't really like filming all that. I just kind of wanted to make a bit of money. And you're like, yeah, you made a ton of it. And you don't deserve it. You bloody so and so but anyway I'll not, I'll not get in that I have a that's bit okay. of vendetta against that's a them. rant for another day yeah, I and we're not going to go into my tangents so no. just, we'll leave it there, <laughs> um, leave it there. very quickly because I know we're going to move on and wrap up with our kind of our VOD choice we're going to alternate mm-hmm. between DVD of the week and pick of the streams but uh, very quickly because it was press screened I know we, neither of you have seen this uh, I was down at the movie house on Monday night and saw a screening of the aftermath period drama starring Jason Clark and Kira Knightley before I kind of give my little very short rambly thoughts on it, let's play a clip of the film. This is going to hurt. You've been avoiding me. Have I? I don't think so. I was going to apologize. For what? I was going to, but I won't. So that's a clip of the aftermath. Now, I know because you haven't seen this, I'll be very, very quick. Uh, I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised by this. I know you were just saying there whilst we were kind of listening to the clip, Joe. Kira Knightley in period drama, <laughs> shock. And I mean, I was the person, and this is also by James Kent, who 
did test them to use. So I genuinely went in with this with zero expectations. I'm someone who's increasingly been won over by Keira Knightley. I mean, you only have to look at her performance in Colette, and she's just excellent in that film. I think that film's flawed in the fact that what it's trying to do and how it's trying to tell the story of an interesting character, but I think she's excellent in this. And Keira Knightley, by far, in this film, it's, a, it's very much a three-hander. We have Alexander Sarsgaard, we have Jason Clark, and we have Keira Knightley. Keira Knightley is by far the, the life of this film. She's what makes it work. Basically, I have a premise. And it's something I haven't... Um, I could be wrong. I know it's based on a novel. We've never... Did I, I, I don't think I've seen this on screen before. I wasn't aware of this. I know that in the, the wake of the end of the Second World War, that the Britain and Russia and USA took on certain responsibilities of rebuilding kind of the life there yeah, re- yeah. rebuilding in Germany especially in Berlin and, and uh, we're used to seeing stories in the kind of the wake of the end of the second world war from Berlin and within the city of Berlin this is different this is telling it from Hamburg and this is the the British army being held responsible and they are part of the rebuilding process and kind of the, the kind of takeover of power from the end of the Hitler era and you see like that. I was kind of thinking of stuff like we, we, we see kind of like in the, the Middle East where we have when regimes fall, these little kind of pockets kind of emerge to kind of claim power. And we have those that were, remain loyal to Hitler. And I suppose it's that weird thing if you're kind of a young person in Germany in the wake of the Second World War, you're told Hitler and the Fuhrer is the supreme and yeah. suddenly you're told yeah. the next day, actually Hitler was the bad guy. Right. The power vacuum like. Yeah, so in that, that wake of that power vacuum, and here we have it all kind of plays out. The the British kind of came in, they were charged with helping rebuild Hamburg, which was so badly damaged during the, the Second World War and during the bombardment campaign that, that Churchill uh, weighed against Germany. And we see this story unfolding that we have Jason Clark as the British British soldier who basically come in and they take over a house in, in Germany. And rather than kicking out the family, which we did, apparently they had every right to do, they keep that family, which is Alexander Sarsgaard and his daughter, and I apologize, I don't have the name of the actress in front of me. And uh, what then happens is we have Keira Knightley coming to Hamburg, and she is grieving the loss of a child that was killed during the, the Blitz. And we have Alexander Sarsgaard, who's grieving the death of his wife. And what we get then, we have an absent husband in the form of Jason Clark who's struggling to deal with his emotions and is burying himself in the war and burying himself in the rebuilding process and of course then this forms this relationship that we see between Keira Knightley and Alexander Sarsgaard and all the kind of stuff that's going on in the background about kind of Germany in the state of flux and a German nation that's suddenly having to get come to terms with the fact that the Fuhrer was the enemy and the Fuhrer was was wrong and this denial of the Holocaust and that the Britain and Britain that were coming in, who they were told was the enemy coming in to, to help with the rebuilding process. That is all the interesting stuff. Then you have this romance between Alexander Sarsgaard and Keira Knightley's character and it's the most uninteresting aspect of the whole film and it becomes the central thrust. There's a, a really powerful moment in it and it's just Keira Knightley playing the piano with this young German girl. And if you're not moved by it, I think you might possibly be dead inside. Because Keira Knightley, she does so much, and you were kind of talking earlier on about Regina King in If Beale Street yeah. could, could Talk. And she's just having to emote so much without saying very little dialogue. And it's through how the power of music, how we're brought together, and how we see in this moment a mother that's grieving her child 
and a daughter that's grieving the death of her mother and how music brings them together. There's some really powerful moments. Keira Knightley, as I say, back of Colette, continues to just impress me as an actress. And I went in with zero expectations because it's a period drama. It's not more normally my cup of tea. There is a sense of a kind of Casablanca-esque ending, and I think the ending is just too sugary sweet for its own good, without, without going into spoilers. But if you've read the book, you probably will know that. Um, would I recommend it? If you're a fan of period dramas, yes. If you like stuff like Mary Queen of Scots and that kind of... T- I know it's a very different type of period drama, but if you like that kind of thing, it's... It's an interesting film, and the, the thrust for me, the thing that really worked for me about it was the simple fact that we have a different perspective. I always, like, when we see stories about the Troubles or we see stories about the, the war or more the Cold War, it's given me new perspectives and things I haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. This did that. As I say, the, the only downfall to it is the fact that we have this love story in the middle of it that is probably the most boring aspect of it. But that's my little thought. I know it's a bit of a hard one when I'm kind of rambling on about a film you haven't seen, but uh, it's out this week. We've seen it because of Movie House Cinemas, and I'd, I'd recommend giving it a go. It's something a little bit different. We're going to move on and wrap up, and now in the new format, we're going to kind of alternate between DVD of the week and our pick of the streams, and this week, we're going to pick something that's available on Amazon Prime. I saw this at London last year. You guys have both seen this on Amazon, so we're going to be talking about Nancy. Joe, you're going to be leading on this, so before you get into sharing your thoughts on the film, give us a bit of setup. Uh, Well, Nancy's about this young woman who's sort of, uh, you know, a loner and sort of disconnected from the world, like uh, she's sort of like an, an addict to the internet in a way and that's how you know she lives her life through the internet but she comes across this case of this uh, couple whose child was kidnapped 30 years previous uh, to the events in this film and she sees it as an opportunity to find some sort of like human connection in a way she like uh, sort of takes advantage of their grief and she goes to meet them to sort of claim that she is their missing daughter after she sees like a picture of what the daughter would look like now and she finds like oh I kind of look like that uh so it's about her and her sort of like introduction and sort of uh, relationship with that family okay so let's play a clip of Nancy I think that I might be your daughter Brooke who is this it's not a joke my name's Nancy and I think that my mother might have kidnapped me 30 years ago it would explain a lot of things in my life we both want to meet you in person right away I've arranged for a private investigator. He'll do a DNA test, ask some questions. Results should be ready in two or three business days. I'd convince myself you were living with some nice family somewhere. Been waiting for Brooke for a really long time. I just don't want to see her get hurt. So that's a clip of Nancy, and that's available on Amazon Prime. Joe, lead the way. Uh, well, I knew absolutely nothing, really, to be honest with you, going into Nancy. like. Were was... you hoping it was a spin-off from Mandy? Maybe. <laughs> when you said Andrea Reisenberg, I was like, ooh. Uh, or need Nancy Drew. Well, yeah. the thing is, with it's funny you say Mandy, she kind of has similarities to the character Mandy, the way she's just this weird, sort of mysterious mm. character. But uh, I'll not get into Mandy, don't worry. Uh, but yeah, I thought I quite liked it for what it was. You know, it's a low key drama that kind of, you know, kind of came from left field. I didn't know much about it and I enjoyed it for what it was. Um, I thought Andrea Reisenberg was actually really good in it. She's excellent. She's excellent. But she always is. Yeah, she is. I think she, you know, she's probably the most underrated actress. Well, one of mm. the most underrated actresses out there. Like she has, like, for all the things that she does in it, and you're kind of like, you oh, know, that that's not on. 
Yeah. Well, that's putting it lightly, like, you know, um, taking advantage of other people's grief and uh, whatnot, uh, just to sort of sort of feed her own but yeah, I don't feelings think of want. The thing about it is, though, and I know we're going to play a clip, because I spoke to Andy Reesborough and the director, Christina Chu, about this at the London yeah. Film Festival. I'll play the clip in a little minute. But I don't think she's a villain. I, I, I don't think she's a villain. I think, and neither do I think she... She does some pretty insidious things mm-hmm. throughout this film, but I don't think she's a villain. I think she's someone who's deeply damaged. Yeah, I th- you see that yeah. through her relationship with her mother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, she's very on and off with her and yeah. such, but it kind of leans more heavily on the off uh, sort of area. And, uh, no, I thought she was good. You know, the way she was, like, sort of, you know, sort of enclosed in herself. And you got yeah. that sense of someone who's very isolated, very on their own, and... Uh, it's funny uh, the more you now as the story progresses and the more open she becomes, the less she be, is like sort of interacting with the internet. Like mm-hmm. when you initially meet her, she's always on the phone. Mm-hmm. On yeah, because when because when we first meet her, this is the part where you kind of go right. This is someone who is kind of, as I say, insidious. The fact mm-hmm. that we see her at the first, she's going to kind of is it a preg- uh, pregnancy? She's meeting is it oh, John, John Leguizamo? Yeah, 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 she's meeting John Leguizamo and. She has the kind of the fake bump. Yeah, so she she runs like a a blog based on her her pregnancy experiences, and it's it's like I think she pretends to be someone who had either a miscarriage previously or had a complications with the pregnancy. Yeah, and kind of runs this blog and has it open to people for you know for them to bring their kind of similar stories to her, and um she strikes up you know this conversation with this one guy who's. Um, is it his daughter or is this you know it's his daughter yeah. his daughter passed away and obviously certain things happened you know the wife broke up and um, yeah she she basically dons a, a, a fake yeah. pregnant see, belly and goes in because and- I think if I'm right I mean I haven't seen this for a little while and I I didn't realise before you said we started to record Tress that this was on Amazon Prime yeah and I think from memory, the way it's revealed is like we when we're first when we first made it. I think we believe she's pregnant too, or yeah. And then it's not until the moment where she kind of leaves the diner and she kind of you see her kind of removing the fake bump, and you're just gonna go, all right, okay, what's up? Where are we gonna go here? You you're clearly a horrible person, and then we see the relationship with her mother, and then her mother dies, and yeah. then we see her then picking up this. We have Steve Buscemi, and I think it's um, Jay Smith Cameron. I think yeah, I can't remember the actresses. They they're kind of this this family that are searching for their their missing daughter, and it's this kind of it's someone who is desperately seeking for a connection, mm-hmm. and we see this constant. She, there's this constant throwback to the fact how she doesn't see herself as being photogenic, that she doesn't think of herself as pretty. Yeah, she's someone who is kind of so. I know I've, I'm looking at my notes that I scribbled down from London and I kind of was thinking of kind of like the idea of the social network when we kind of seen mm-hmm. someone who is so, so a film that was all about bringing people closer together but yet this is someone who feels more distant than anybody and kind of there's that definite sense here in this film of someone who's craving kind of interaction with people it's there at the, the, literally at the, the touch of her phone but yet even when she's in the room with people and kind of creating this fake persona you, you get a sense of that she still feels deeply, deeply isolated. Mm-hmm. Like, I suppose you say, um, you know, you, in the scene where she is temping in a dentist mm-hmm. and um, initially, like, 
I kind of thought, so basically she, she's just there, meets a dentist and meets the other dentist nurse assistant and, um, you know, she offhand says, oh yeah, I've been to North Korea and he's <laughs> like, what, what do you mean you've been to North Korea? Like, my wife's Korean, like, you, no, nobody can be there. Mm-hmm. And then she just swept out these photos and she's like, yeah. No. And part of me thought at the time, I was like, did she Photoshop them? No, I think or... she did. I have a feeling she did. Yeah. Like, you look at her, you know, the way she lives in that there, there's no exactly. way she could even 100%. afford to, you know. And then, you know, when it leads back into her blog and mm. constantly having her phone and, you know, if this is one side of her where she has photoshopped all these pictures mm. of her being in North Korea and herself, she goes, oh, that, that would be like a, a good, you know, talking point if somebody yeah. was to ask me. And, um, the same with you know the whole the whole pregnancy thing and in the beginning I do believe she is a villain like I do believe that part of what she does is malicious and I know it's maybe her reaction to social media and things got like this I think of catfish right yeah. TV yeah. show yeah. and even this was a film like you must know of some certain extent yes if you are completely disconnected from the world and your only way to be in interaction with other people is through a fake profile it may make you feel better mm-hmm. and there may be underlying issues but you're still being a bad person and yeah in the beginning she really is a bad person and then it it she kind of turned me almost on her whenever because she loves her cat God, i hate cats yeah I, I, I see when the cat ran away i was like oh, i was right, like thank enough. i <laughs> i was hoping she was going to find it in the snow dead it hurt Jeez. steve buscemi and his allergies yeah um I although i love like it's this is a tiny tangent seeing whenever people call their animals like people names yeah, i think paul. it's it brilliant paul, paul. Yeah. like um i do have a dog at the minute called bailey but whenever i get my own dog it's being called gary like it's just is it's well just, we have a dog called maddie so I know That's you. Nice t- you told me about your dog before, yeah. Um, but well, we had a dog called Jill. Oh, I like that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're listening, Jill. If why? Yeah. Well, I don't want to get into the Maddie thing, so we'll leave that there. <laughs> no. And but then, just as you said, you you say at the start, you thought of you you thought of her as a yeah. Dog. I hated her at the beginning. Did you find yourself changed by the end? A hundred percent. I almost felt so sorry for it. Like. No. <laughs> did no? I just felt. I couldn't. And I, fe- I felt sorry for her, but at the same time, I'm all, I was not rooting for her, but... Were you rooting for her in the fact that you want her to be this missing daughter? Oh, yeah, I did. There, yeah. was, there was a point in time where I was convinced mm-hmm. that, that that was her. I was, and even... Because my thing is, when I was watching this, there was a sense where I think when I first... There's, there's definitely, a, at the first half, it's opportunism. Oh, yeah. Someone, again, mm-hmm. it's come that idea of someone looking to be looking for the traditional family unit and looking for that connection with someone. But then I think by the time she almost starts to believe it. Yeah. That, there's a point yeah. where there's a point like where she's off and I think it's her and um, uh, Jay Smith Cameron, the mother, and the mother's telling her the story about how she was kidnapped and how she, how she lost her daughter. And then it's kind of, you can get this sense of, I think she really, it's gone from opportunism to she really wants to, to be this daughter to me i think it was a point where um we'd obviously talk about that her cat runs away and she comes across the the wooden planks in the bars Mm -hmm. oh the tree house the tree house and initially i thought oh she's that's an opportunistic Mm -hmm. you know situation but it's whenever she comes in and 
she can obviously see that like Steve Buscemi because he's very skeptical the whole the whole way and whenever she mentions the treehouse it's a glimmer of hope that he has he's like oh god right to she actually genuinely went and I think at that point is when she goes oh no I did I really did remember our treehouse and I remember this and I remember this I love the little inter interchanges between him and her. And he's kind of tucks. He's just the little sni- swipes here and there. Oh yeah. See, thing. I I I was with Steve Buscemi the whole time. I was like, if he embodied everything I was thinking and feeling towards her, I was like, I know you're a con artist. I know what you're. Do you think? Don't be do you think the thing? Cause I, again, I'm looking at my notes I made at the time, and it's only because I was thinking about this because I was I saw a film at the Berlin Film Festival with Juliette Binoche called "Who Do You Think I Am?" And just because you mentioned catfishing, and it's a film about a fifty year old woman who is a self-proclaimed cougar. There's a great line that where she kind of says, uh, I'm, a, I'm a cougar. I'm an older woman who likes younger men. It's like, well, what do you call an older man who likes a younger woman? A man. You're like, yeah, I, I just love that little <laughs> line. But there's this idea where it's, because it's told from her perspective, this is uh, Who Do You Think I Am, the Juliet Binoche film. It's told from her point of view and it's told almost as a romantic comedy, how she's catfishing this young 20-year-old guy into kind of having, you know, phone sex and this online relationship with her. And you kind of, you're with her. I think only a French film would, would be able to pull this off. I don't think you would get that from a kind of American or British uh, film. But I think it's the fact that it's told from her point of view. You can get away with that. In the same way, like in this film, if this was told from Steve Buscemi's character or from that the family's mm-hmm. point of view... This is a horror. This is kind of this is a horror. Do you know I mean it's yeah, kind of no, horror no, no, no. inflected, inflected horror kind of thriller kind of. It's a film about this woman who's coming into your life, kind of as I say, insidiously and trying to say that she is the daughter that that you have been missing. But I think it's the fact that it's told from her point of view, mm-hmm. and I know Andy Reese has been keen with this because it's a film she has produced with her, and I'm very careful about how I say this. Mother sucker production company it's a largely all female production wise i think it's only the i think possibly the cinematographer i think i don't know whether or not that really makes a difference to the end of the products i think at the end of the day it's all going to be there in the, the narrative anyway yeah but um i think it's interesting that this film is told from her point of view as opposed to the, the family who she's trying to say i am your daughter well the thing is you've seen films from the family point of view yeah, before. yeah. that's why this is you know, yeah. this you know sort of puts a new spin on things because it is from the you know, the sort of perpetrator's point of view from the get go. Yeah, yeah, agree. Don't want to be too much of a spoiler type thing, but the bit that kind of got me more so, and I think would kind of made me turn in her favor was you know obviously it, it's well known that she isn't the daughter and. Yeah. You know the mother gets a phone call, and you know there was like a, a tiny point where her reaction was relief. Mm-hmm. I, I know, like she is crying, but she's like hysteric, and it's quite emotional. But for a second, I thought, oh god, like she genuinely is. And straight after, um, they sat down for dinner, and she know you know the mother knows that this is not her daughter and she says something to mm. to Nancy to be like I know you're not my daughter but that's okay cuz I'm I'm yeah. I'm ready to just take it's, you on yeah it's a weird way to give her closure yeah. for all the trauma mm. she's been through over the 30 years cuz uh, she had had like a it, false yeah. experience like what was it when tw- 10 years previous 10 years yeah. previous and you know it kind of reflects on the other side of it so yes Jim you're saying this is this is told mm-hmm. Directly through Nancy, but in that brief 
moment you go god there's more of an effect here than you really know and the fact that this woman is is more than happy to just accept yeah. this random woman who's appeared after 30 years on her door she spent a week with her mm-hmm. and she and herself for her closure is more than happy to support her and to you know put forward her writing and to take her this and and mm. you know give her a life which she's never had and I think that's what tips Nancy then yeah. over the edge. She goes, I, I just can't do this these people. And you can see how that even has a knock-on effect in Steve Buscemi's character because he completely like is sceptical towards the idea of Nancy being his actual daughter. Yeah. But then when he sees the effect it's having on his wife and how she's finding closure. Some in sort way of a life. Yeah. He's like kind of going, you know what, I'm just going to go along with this because... She's been she tortured for 30 years. Way, yeah. Um, but... Um, yeah, no, no. I uh, overall, I, I th- think it's an interesting sort of low key film, and I did like. Yeah, it. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I think, I suppose Anne died at the beginning. Coming back to hereditary, mm. genuinely, completely didn't know it was her until I went on IMDb and realized it? it was the mad. It was mad woman yeah. from hereditary, plays her mummy. Um, <laughs> and you know, it, it obviously there there's a difficult relationship there and. Um, it alludes to that. I would love to know what their kind of story was too. Yeah. You know, the mm. fact that she doesn't have a birth certificate. Yeah, what what created that? This what created between that, the two? So I I think from that point of view, it's one of the the supporting evidence that she could okay. go to them and be like. I, I don't know, my mummy's dead, yeah. I don't know where my rough certificate is. Kind of makes you think as well, well, maybe she is telling the truth, but maybe she doesn't even realise she's telling the truth in that yeah. You know, maybe something yeah. horrible only, did happen to her. Because the only real mm-hmm. time she gets called out, and the only time we really kind of see her cast in the villain role, is when we, we see that kind of, we mentioned earlier on, where she's kind of got the fake kind of baby bump, yeah. and then she's, she's caught out in that, in a supermarket scene, and it kind of this guy, kind of John Leguizano, and he he kind of calls her out and everything follows her out to the car and that's the only time we really see her it's where she's of, caught out yeah, yeah where she, mm-hmm. we're not even well she's caught out as, as as not being the daughter but she's not cast as a villain yeah it's the only time where you see her when she's kind of hand on heart where she's kind of said no you're a horrible nasty evil person mm-hmm. more or less you're, and he was like you're sick minded like you're yeah. sick just leave you're me alone sick. type well, of thing I like you but I was like oh no you're sick yeah um, we've all been there <laughs> yeah I mean I, I don't I would recommend, and I have actually ever have recommended the film um, to other people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I think it would be very hard to explain. Um, yeah. you, you know, and like a, you could, I don't think you could put it into a sentence. No. Um, but I'm surprised it isn't more widely known. Mm. I was surprised. I went to see this not knowing anything about it. It was because. Andrew Reesborough was doing press at London and she did press for Nancy, but she didn't do any for Mandy. And I was like, well, I really want to speak to Andrew Reesborough. And uh, that then gives us a shameless opportunity then at this point then to bring in that little interview from London last year. When I spoke with the film's director, Christina Jo, I spoke to Andrew Reesborough, I spoke with Jay Smith Cameron, and you'll also hear some of the producers behind the film as well. And uh, here's that interview. Hi, Christina. Can you tell us a little bit about this feature? Uh, yeah, it's basically a psychological drama and a character study of Nancy, played by the brilliant Andrea Riseborough. Um, and it's about um, her search for identity, and she, you know, you find out that she um, is sort of a, she's creates these elaborate lies to get close to people, and then once her mother passes away, she sees this news report 
Um, it's older couple played by um, Steve Buscemi and J. Smith Cameron. Um, and they're talking about their long lost daughter. And when they show the photo of who they of the daughter, what she would look like, it looks just like Nancy. And so she goes on a journey to find out if she could be the daughter or not. Ladies, can you tell me a little bit about your respective role within this feature? Nancy's a uh, sort of ex an extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily big-hearted but uh, ill-equipped adult <laughs> in terms of having any sort of. Uh, appropriate tools to, to deal with the world, which is um, meets men through miscarriage websites, sometimes um, misrepresents herself on, online, uh, and really wants human connection, and eventually, ultimately ends up believing, I, th I think, that she's the daughter of Jay's character, Ellen. Ellen and uh, my husband Steve Buscemi plays my husband and we have lost our daughter when she was a child she was kidnapped, disappeared and uh, my character's never given up hope that she might reappear and like Andrea's character I think we both are kind of hoping it will turn out to be true and so it's a really a story about connection and longing for a connection even though they're, it's kind of an odd, odd oddballs kind of um, groping around trying to find where they'll stick, I think, you know? Both your characters, in their own unique way, are damaged in a certain way, and they're kind of seeking to be kind of made whole again. Can I ask you both, I mean, how you approach that as actors? Um, how do I, how did I approach playing a damaged character? I don't know, I feel like um, that's a human condition, that people, that everyone walking around has been, has experienced loss and feels damaged and is seeking a meaningful connection. And um, these are two people who really see, I think actually it is a true authentic connection they make. And they really are, they really are related, um, but in this, in this esoteric way. And, they're, and that's what the story is to me, is that they get to discover each other against all odds. When Nancy goes to Ellen and Leo's house, it's almost like she's turning up at the house of the seagull, you know. There are, there are, there's literature, everyone's, every, there, there seems to be this sort of acceptance and warmth that she's not familiar with and, and also feels really awkward about, you know, Nancy doesn't quite know what to do with that. Um, and she's really only great at connecting with her cat, Paul, <laughs> which I think we can all relate to. <laughs> can I ask, I mean, Andrew, you're someone who descends into roles, into your character roles, I mean, I know it's a cliched, silly, maybe silly sounding question. When you descend into those roles, when you have to let them go, is it sometimes easier with the roles? Or in a character like Nancy, when you descend into that performance, then coming away from that, then to do something along the lines of like Mandy? You know, the times that I, the times that I find it most hard, and I'm sure that Jay will identify with this because we both do a lot of theatre, is, is with theatre roles. You know, you play the same role for nine months, afternoon and evening, eight times a week. I mean, it's a long stretch, and when you finish, you feel bereft. It's, you know, it, it's such a it's such an odd experience. Partly because you don't know where you end and the character begins past a certain point. I think. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You have to bring yourself to any part anyway, mm -hmm. so it's it becomes a sort of blurry mix. I think if you if yeah. you do it right. <laughs> yes. So. Yeah. Um, I was very, you know, interested in creating this anti-heroine character and. This, very flawed female character that I hadn't seen in a lot of movies and TV, and um, sort of obsessed with imposter stories, and then 
while I was writing it, discovered one of my favorite writing professors was a fraud. And so basically we had all, you know, worshipped him as a teacher and, you know, when it came out he was a fraud, it, it kind of brought up this question like, does it matter if it's a lie if what I experienced was very true and authentic? Just become, you know, the theme of Nancy in many ways. Can I ask yourself, Andrea, I mean, this is much as this is Christina's baby, this is yours as well, with Mother Sucker, and I'm being very careful how I say that. Can I ask about how this ended up being one of the first features for Mother Sucker? Um, really because we stuck with it. I met Christina four years ago, was it four years ago now? Crazy. And we went through a couple of incarnations of producing teams and eventually landed with the, the right mix. <laughs> um, and... Yeah, it was. It, it actually, you know, in many ways came together very quickly. I think a huge part of the reason that it came together was Barbara Broccoli, who's with us somewhere tonight hiding. <laughs> um, the fairy godmother. A, yeah, the fairy godmother. Who, um, you know, she, she is so passionate about female filmmakers and having female tori- stories told through a female lens. And, you know, we wanted to have as many women on set as possible so that it really was truly was a female lens that we were looking at the story through and we did we had all all female heads of department except for one man who is here tonight damn him damn him no, he's wonderful. but can i ask you man nancy's a complicated character I mean, i was watching this film t- today and i mean she's someone she's not a villain but there's something there's a darkness to her there's, she's damaged i mean how did you when you took that character from the script to when you're given the betrayal i mean how did you read her I think it's really important not to demonise or villainise or um, hypersexualize flawed women. And I think it's something we see time and time again in film. It's been, it's been uh, a sort of age-old problem in film. And we've almost gone backwards in the, in the past, uh, certainly 20 years, in terms of how women in film are represented. They've become so hypersexualized. Um, or there's some sort of narrow version of a woman that's kind of a purist unreal uh, person the thing about Nancy is you know <laughs> yeah yes she's flawed her emotional tools are rusty but she but she's a real person and in the in this social media age she really wants to have human connection she goes about it in, in all the wrong ways but she she's self misrepresenting in the way that a lot of us do in this social media age, you know, like we always have, almost have a separate life, an avatar, and and through fantasy she can kind of escape the the sadness of suburbia. If I can ask you, I mean, that sounds like suburbia is horrible. It's not. No, it's not. Like suburbia, it's a lovely place to be. <laughs> um, if I can ask, it can be sad, like if anywhere. I, if I can ask you all, all four ladies standing, I mean. Much has been made in the about getting equality on in front of the camera and behind the camera. How do we ensure that that momentum that has been that has been built up? I see with the Times Up campaigns, badges, things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you ensure that momentum isn't lost and we carry on this conversation not just next year and you know five years, ten years? How do we carry on that conversation? Michelle Cameron and Tisa Harami would be perfect <laughs> people to answer those questions. That was very diplomatic, almost a politician like. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's a really challenging question it's hard it's scary even for me I think about it all the time we're on the cusp of like the wave could break and things could change and get better or they could stay the same I think what's different now is women coming together collectively and raising their voices together and we're more powerful that way Um, and change is actually happening like I see I see it incremental you know it's getting better and I think that's what it is we have to keep 
having each other's backs, too, and women speaking up constantly. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I mean, basically what she said. Um, but <laughs> it, it is about women supporting other women. Um, I remember my mother, when I was very young, she said to me, she's like, if women would just learn how to support other women, we could rule the world. And I think... Um, that's very true today as it was in the 70s yeah. when she originally said it. Or putting ourselves first a little yes, bit, right? Exactly. Not that we don't support each other, but I think we tend to put everybody in front exactly. of yeah. ourselves and, and care for them. And when you're in a, a patriarchal society, that tends to happen. And I think it's very much about um, women finding our own power. And once we do that, we're able to support other women and what they want to do as well. I mean, I think it's, you know, I think for us, we hired women and we, you know, had an 80% female crew and 50% POC and it was very important to, you know, not just like say it, but actually do it. And I think there are people that, I, uh, you know, I look up to like Ava DuVernay and just worked for her um, and she sets a really amazing example of just do what you say, you know, and I think the reality is there's not that many people doing it, but like everyone that does it, you know, makes a dent, and we're all sort of making our dent, and I think, I do think the tide is changing. I finally, I'm starting to see it, you know, and I think that's really exciting, so we just have to all commit to the, to doing it, so. I feel really positive about it. I feel like we're part of a different generation, and that's, that's no criticism of what's gone before, it's just a sort of an evolution an evolution of some sort. I think everyone's uh, aware of who they're employing and, you know, holding themselves accountable for the decisions that we make, which is, you know, just great and should be done anyway. It's difficult because most female films, what, what, what does that even mean? But most uh, films that, say, have a female protagonist or a female anti-hero like Nancy um, are lower budget films. Not all of them, but, but, but a lot of them. Um, and in that scenario, you can't provide childcare. There's no creche. There's a, I mean, you can, the childcare seems a luxury on, on a huge Hollywood studio set. So it's very difficult to not only to be part of turning the tide, but to take care of everyone while you're doing it and to not sort of, um, you know, throw employees under the bus at any stage. You need to be able to pay them properly. You need to be able to, uh, you know, sometimes job sharing is really helpful with women who need maternity leave. There are just so many logistical things that are really practical and simple to sort out, but they've never been on anybody's agenda before. So I think those are really interesting things to focus on moving forward. Can I just ask you, what's next? You've given Christina your platform, the, the platform with your production company. What's going to be the next project Mother Sucker will work on to you next? I can't tell you yet, but I will. Go on. <laughs> I can't. It's really exciting, but I can't. No right. Thank you very much. <laughs> So that's my interview with some of the cast of Nancy, and as uh, say, as you say, Trez, that's available on Amazon Prime. And uh, yeah, it, it's a strange one. I don't think it's going to necessarily be everyone's cup of tea. But the whole point of when you have so much available now on demand, these weird, wonderful films get, sometimes get overlooked. Guys, we we are pretty much out of time. So all that's really left for me to say now is thank you very much, Joe. Thanks, Jim. Thank you very much, Trez. Thanks, Jim. We'll be back next week when we'll be talking about Captain Marvel. Uh, 
Well, uh, and on that twig, there was a branch, a rare branch, a rattling branch in the branch, in the tree, in the tree, in the ground, in the ground, in the bog, in the bog, down in the valley, oh, 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 the rattling bog, the bog, down in the valley, oh, 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 the rattling bog, the bog, down in the valley, oh. I need a drink.